Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this episode of Risk, you'll hear Justin J. Wee. It said over 40,260 men online now. I said, well, get ready for number 40,261, honey. Yeah. Bam. That and more. But first, folks, our 600th episode is coming very soon. We want to hear your voices saying what risk means to you. Grab your smartphone, use the voice memo app, and tell us what you love about the show or how it's affected you or who you've shared it with. There's tips on getting good audio at risk-show.com slash recording. And you can send your little audio testimonials directly to me at kevin at risk-show.com by May 25th. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. 
I'm Kevin Allison. This is Vijay Iyer behind me now. And this is the third of our Asian American Lives series. The month of May is Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. So we're celebrating some of our very favorite stories told over the years on risk by Asian Americans. We hope that you share these episodes with friends and family and on your social media because the 20 stories in these four episodes are just so beautiful and powerful. And in every little way that we're really hearing one another's stories, we're better able to support one another. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from the amazingly talented Justin J. Wee, whose photography is on another level. I'm telling you, you will be seeing Justin's photographs in the world's greatest museums soon enough. Look him up at justinjwee.com. And before Justin, an extraordinary story by Samira Sahibi. You can find her on Facebook at Samira Samira. This is a story that she told at a Risk Live show in Portland, Oregon a few years back. And here she is now. Samira Sahibi with a story we call Her Touch. I was a bedwetter well into grade school, and I kind of liked it. At nights, my mother would pull up this unusually large diaper, and I would step into it. And I would hold on to it as she would fasten it. And it was this beautiful moment of watching her take care of me, and there was no judgment. And we had this moment of connecting, and it was really like the only time she would ever touch me. So I looked forward to it every day, and we would just talk as if it was like the normalest thing to put a diaper on a six-year-old. It wasn't that my mother wasn't a kind person or that she didn't love me. She just showed her love by doing. She was a doer. She did a lot for me. She got pregnant while having two teenagers, and it was because a physician suggested it would help with her health condition. By this time, my father had more money, so they were excited to do things right this time around. So she started sewing every article of clothing that I would wear, my bedding, even my diapers had engravings on them. And she had ordered um, boxes of Ovaltine to be shipped to Iran. And um, she had signed me up for private school. So there was all this expectation about my greatness. And so I came along and I was this like scrawny whiner and I cried a lot and I got sick all the time. And on top of it, I was very fidgety, very antsy kid. And so they wondered if I had tapeworms, and they took me to the doctor, and I did. <laughs> and then we treated them, and then I got them again and again. And then my grandma started speculating that because I've had them for so long, that I had the spirit of a tapeworm, a dancing worm in my butt that was making me fidgety. <laughs> I think the diagnostic term for the dancing warm in the butt would be ADHD. <laughs> I had it. 
But I wasn't the only restless one in Iran at that time. There was rumblings of a revolution. There was civil unrest everywhere. It wasn't very threatening, but there was demonstrations. It was orchestrated by the University of Tehran students, and other progressives would join. And in order to get like the less progressive to join as well, they started incorporating some Islamic slogans. And one of the activities that we were encouraged to do was to go to the rooftops because they're flat in Tehran, because we sleep there at nights in the summers. We're supposed to go to the rooftops and chant Allahu Akbar, which is an Arabic phrase for God is great. And we had to use Arabic because Allah does not speak Persian. And the point of it was that if you go to the rooftop and you, instead of protesting, you just say, God is great, you couldn't get arrested. And if everyone did it, then no one would get caught. But there wasn't a lot of buy-in. However, my mother was getting nervous about it because she was sort of tender and very nervous about my sister because she was a college student. And to the outside world, my mother presented as an incredibly confident person. She was gifted in math and she also had a spectacular voice. In fact, we wouldn't be able to go anywhere without my mother being asked to sing and my father would accompany her and they were so impressive. It was such a stark contrast to how she was at home. She was very serious. She was not at all entertaining. She didn't have a sense of humor and she wasn't very affectionate. In fact, she kind of had a temper on her. One time she was uh, gutting a chicken in the kitchen and called me over because it was a learning moment. And she's like, do you see these eggs? And it was this progression of pink balls, like beads that got smaller and smaller until they disappeared. And she's like, these were gonna be eggs. And the biggest one was gonna come out and it was gonna look like an egg and the hen would lay on it and it would hatch into a chick. And I was so excited as a six-year-old and I asked for it, I asked for the egg. And a couple hours later when she called me and I wouldn't go over, she started looking for me and she found that I was sitting on the egg waiting for it to hatch. <laughs> And she realized that I had soiled the Persian carpet with blood, including my butt. And so I got a spanking for that, which to me felt like, well, that was out of nowhere. But to her, it made sense. So in the summers, I would try to get away. Well, for one, I wanted to play with Barbies, and I didn't have any. I just had two toys, and we had money, so I don't understand what's up with that. So we had a dog. I had a dog that was battery-operated, so I would carry it around, pretend it was real. And then I had this blonde, big baby that would sing jingle bells in German. <laughs> they got that in a European trip. I couldn't get into it, I wanted a Barbie. So I would go to my cousin's houses and I would play with them and, and they would have like snacks and chocolate and their moms were friendly and I started to like have a little mom envy, like wow, I want a friendly mom. Because I was scared of my mom. But eventually the summer would end and I would come home and I would be faced with what was really wrong at our house, which was my mother's health condition. Uh, my mother had grand mal seizures and no, pregnancies don't cure that. I don't know what that guy was thinking. <laughs> she would get sick in the mornings. It would be usually upon rising. So we would never wake her up. We would make sounds. I wouldn't go wake her in the middle of the night. And if I woke up and I went to my door and it was locked, that meant mom had gotten sick and the adults were taking care of her. And because it was so traumatic, they didn't want me to see it. So I would just kind of wait 
and I was a good girl and I would just wait for them to wake up or to let the door open and let me out. And this was an understanding I was born into. I have no memory of it being any different way. And the door would open and then I wouldn't ask and they wouldn't offer and we'd all pretend like nothing had happened, like this was just another morning, we'd just have breakfast. But one morning there was something a little different. There was a scream and I ran to the door and it was locked. But this time I just couldn't relax. I started pacing the room and I was reading The Little Prince at the time and I just kept reading it over and over and it wasn't working. And I was like, oh, I can't breathe. Maybe this pajamas are getting too tight. So I changed out of my pajamas into something loose. And this is something I'd never worn. I was like really scrawny and the skirt was falling off my hips. So I made a decision in that moment to do something I'd never done, which was to disobey and leave during lockout. So I opened the balcony door and the shame in being disobedient was such that my head just hang heavy and I was tiptoeing. And I went over to my parents' bedroom and I tiptoed just looking at my toes and I went to the dresser and I opened the jewelry box and I got the safety pins out. I was lowering the jewelry box lid ever so gently as to not make a sound. And this moment I saw my reflection in the mirror and it shocked me and then I saw behind me was my mother's lifeless body on the bed and I knew she was dead (laughs) I ran back to my room I pounded on the door I said I know what's happened you need to let me out and they did in shock there was already mourners rushing over to the house. The sight of me would just instigate more tears in people, and I just remember these elderly women would just grab me and pull me into their sweaty cleavages, and I could just smell their stench of B.O., and I would just be wet from their tears, and they would whisper things I couldn't hear, and they would say idiotic things like, she's in a better place, or it's probably for the best, and I just, just so wish I could have a voice and ask them all to leave and stop invading our house. There was around 100 people within an hour. So the time came for the body to be moved, and at that point I asked to see her, and that was met with a lot of resistance. It was just too heart-wrenching, just like looking at me made people cry. So I insisted this time, and they said, okay, so... An uncle said I would take her because my own family couldn't handle it. And so they took me to the corner room where she was. We opened the door and the curtains were drawn and there was a candle. (sighs) There were people praying for her soul. There was a lady reading the Quran. A couple of other people were just chanting and rocking, and my father was a staunch atheist, so he couldn't have anything to do with that. He just left. My uncle set me down. Up until that moment, I wasn't sure I really loved my mother. It was unfathomable because she had talked me in the night before, and I couldn't believe that that body was just lifeless. So I started to touch her because... It just felt so natural to touch her face. And so with my little hands, I started to touch her face and caress her hair. And she looked so peaceful. She'd never looked so calm and beautiful in real life. She was utterly at peace. 
and the sight of me touching my mother was too unbearable, and so the whole room broke into sobs. It had been hours since my mother died, and I just couldn't cry, and that was one of my specialties. <laughs> so it was time to leave, and I noticed her rings, and I asked to take them. It was like I would watch her hands touch things and do things all day. And I had this longing that she would touch me, and then she wouldn't. And here she was. She had no choice. I had her hands in my little hands. And they were so exquisitely beautiful. She had these noteworthy, beautiful hands that everybody kept staring at and complimenting her on. And I held them in my little hands. And as I was removing the rings, I started to feel this pressure, like, oh my God, I have to remember this sensation because I'm never going to feel it again. And the pressure to memorize that sensation was so great that that's when I broke and that's when I started bawling. As I started bawling and I was kissing her hands and I was holding on to her, I was removed from the body and she was taken. And I wasn't allowed to attend the funeral because it's pretty... Intense, the Shia tradition. The next few days were a blur. That night I had a really hard time sleeping. There were like 30 people sleeping in our house. I could hear the chants of Allahu Akbar louder than ever before. It's as if all of Tehran knew my mother had died and they were all in their rooftops talking to me, telling me God is great and I wasn't having it. And so the next night the chants got louder and the next night louder, and it grew so loud that a week after my mother died, the revolution broke, and the people of Iran overthrew the Shah, and now there was chaos outside and inside, and schools closed, and I had no structure. I just wandered around in my sweatpants for months while the government was trying to figure out curriculums for schools and how to incorporate religion into school systems now, and rewriting history books. That kind of stuff takes time. And during that time, <laughs> I got very contemplative because I felt like, well, who dies in their sleep? Like, it must have been something I've done. It's because I didn't clean my room and I wasn't doing my homework. Maybe she didn't love me enough to stay. And all those thoughts that are apparently normal for children. And then school finally opened and I had something to do. So... When schools opened, about a third of my classmates were missing. All the Baha'is had fled. They had to. And then most of the Jews and the Armenians had also left. And these were the kids that I'd been in school with since kindergarten. And they all left without saying goodbye. And that was very traumatic. And that was also the last year that um, boys and girls were allowed to attend schools at the same schools. And so after that, we were segregated. For me, it was, um, I started to develop fevers at home and my grades started dropping. And I would invoke these fevers that would push me to delirium. And I started having these morbid fantasies of dying and reuniting with her and feeling whole. And I liked that feeling so much, the fevers became chronic. I started to really question, like I never knew that I loved my mother, honestly. Like I just thought we weren't that close. And I was so innocent that I didn't realize that even though she had this presence around the house, that she just took care of things and wasn't fun and dynamic, her loss completely tore apart my family. We completely dissolved. She was the glue that held us together. 
within a few years of her death, we dispersed and ended up in different continents and never formed a family again. And I outgrew my morbid tendencies and channeled my aching for maternal love into my professions in human services for a number of years. Then the time came for me to experience motherhood, and I had built it up my entire life into something that I couldn't live up to. And so at every turn, I declined, and with every decision, I felt tormented, I felt broken by it. But it happened over and over, so then I knew that it wasn't just something I was ever going to be ready for. And as for connecting to my mother, I just, I no longer wish I were dead or have any delusions that she's going to like be waiting for me with open arms somewhere. I connect to her through my love for singing, through the short temper we share, <laughs> and by wearing the ring that I took off her finger. Thank you. If you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance. There's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Holy shit. <laughs> I'm really extremely gooped to be here. Uh, I have been a really long-time fan of the show, and uh, I made sure not to eat dairy today, and I said a little prayer, so <laughs> let's, we'll really be able to tell if God hates the homosexuals today. <laughs> um, I remember the first night that I met my ex's best friend. My ex was really excited because this guy was coming down from D.C., and he was like, you guys are going to love each other. And I was 25, and this was my first relationship. And I was, had somehow landed this like extremely hot human who had like an insane amount of tattoos on his body and a really nice, sharp jawline. And he had this like really consistent and like full covering of facial hair, which as an Asian man who can only grow like a toothbrush on my upper lip was like just incredibly appealing. And the thing is, it's not, it's, not, it's not even like a nice toothbrush. It's like a roadside motel toothbrush where you like, where you just kind of look at it and you're like, does this even have a function? But we were in Hell's Kitchen and we were waiting outside a club called Therapy and his friend finally arrives. And my ex says, Justin, this is Blaine. And so I say hello and then he says hello. And I'm like feeling this real explosion of like platonic chemistry. And all of a sudden I'm seeing Blaine give me the once over. And then he looks over to my ex and he goes, oh, I didn't know that you were into Asians. And I look at my ex and I see that his face is like kind of crunched up and I'm watching all of the cogs in his brain kind of grind to a halt. And I really want to reach out and hold his hand and say, I'm personally really grateful that your dick doesn't discriminate <laughs> because it feels really good. <laughs> but all I could think was, yeah, I get it. I don't know why you want to date me either. And then the bouncer waved us into the club, which was called Therapy. And I went to the bar, and I bought a whiskey ginger and a tequila shot. And then I was like moseying my way through all of these muscle marys. And there was a stage on the back. And because I'm an upstanding homosexual, I got up on the stage. And from where I stood, I could see all the lights in the club kind of like swinging around. And they cast this like blue light on the dance floor. And the thing about white people is that you need as much color in your skin as possible. So when someone shines a blue light on you, you look like a fucking ghost. <laughs> and so I was looking at all of these ghosts in front of me, and I became acutely aware of just how many there were. And at that very moment, Miley Cyrus's Wrecking Ball started playing. And here's a pro tip. If you have just been microaggressed, if you're in a club called therapy, 
and that defining Miley classic comes on, those are the three ingredients you need to have an existential crisis. And all I could think about in that moment was how I had gotten here. When I first started dating in Sydney, I decided to join a website called Manhunt, which you know, truly sounded like an activity that I'd be very interested in. Um, <laughs> I remember like, logging onto the website for the first time, and the word MAN was in all caps, and it was emblazoned in gold, and then right underneath it, it said, over 40,260 men online now. And I looked at that, and I looked at the sign-up button, and in just my most primal voice, I said, well, get ready for number 40,261, honey, yeah! Bam! Bam! And so I got my profile together really quickly, and I started, like, browsing all of these men, and then I clicked on the first one, and his bio probably said something like, fine, it was, like, super unmemorable. And then right at the very bottom, it said, no rice, no spice, need apply. And here's another great way to have an existential crisis. Be a queer kid watching a heteronormative society dictate to you how you should live your life. And then when you finally have the confidence to rebuke that, realizing that the community that you're wanting to walk into doesn't really want you there in the first place. And it wasn't just one profile that said this. There, there were many, but a lot of them didn't possess the same kind of like pizzazz that that one did. There were a lot of people who were just like, no Indians, no Asians, no black people. And I know what you're thinking. You're like, Justin, decolonize your butthole. Like, why do you want to fuck so many white men? And like, you would be right. But I was a banana. And I'm not sure how many other bananas are in the crowd tonight, but a banana is basically someone who is yellow on the outside and white on the inside. You see, I, this was like not something that I had just like anointed myself. I had been trained for this. When I was younger, I lived in Southeast Asia and I was socialized in expatriate communities. And I always remember the way that my mother would teach my sister and I how to navigate conversations around race. She would sit at a marble table in the kitchen and she had this like ferocious palm that she just fed like bottles and bottles of Vidal Sassoon extra strength hairspray. <laughs> and she had these very long fingernails that were painted red and she would point them at me and she'd say, if anyone asks where you're from, you tell them that you're Australian. And then she'd say, you are the offspring of two people who left a shitty town in Malaysia called Kuching to move to a shitty town in England called Brighton, where your father worked in room service and I worked a legally inefficient chip shop so that you could eventually have the opportunities that we never could. So that you could be the kind of Asian who spoke English as a first language, so that you could be the kind of Asian who didn't need a scholarship to go to a good university, so that you could be the kind of Asian who knew not to go <laughs> when he ate his noodles. And in Singapore and in, and in Malaysia, there's this like, colloquial thing that um, local people do when they speak English where they add la onto the end of their sentence. And when my sister and I mimicked this, my mother would take those like, sharp red pincers and she would dig them into my skin. And maybe that sounds severe. And maybe I definitely like, hyperdramatize that like a tiny bit just for your entertainment. <laughs> 
But it was with this intensity that I understood what my mother was trying to teach me. And that it was that I had to embody some sort of like ethnic palatability so that I could have the capability of passing in a way that my parents never could. And that was the kind of Asian that I was supposed to be. When I first started going out, there was this club in Sydney called the Midnight Shift, except nobody called it that. It was, to everyone on the strip, called Chopsticks and Walking Sticks, because it was frequented by older white men and young Asians. It was like these two groups on the perimeter of gay desire had converged on this space because it was some sort of like gateway for desire. And it was this like dark and dank space that played like way too much Taylor Swift and smelled kind of faintly of the bleach that was used to clean my high school cafeteria. And every hour in it was like last call at any other bar where even if you were dancing, your eyes were always darting around the room looking for somebody to settle on. And when your eyes finally locked with someone else, it was less about lust and more about knowing that this was as good as it was going to get for the night. It was after this sort of dance that I had sex for the first time. I remember his skin was like pale and he had these glossy protruding eyes and these like bluish lips and I definitely don't remember his name and I remember taking him back to my basement apartment and having him explain to me how he had composed a piece of music for Chainsaw and Chainsaw was a euphemism for literally nothing because he had actually composed a piece of music for Chainsaw. <laughs> but that was not enough to scare me away. <laughs> and so we were on my bed and he was on top of me and he did this thing where he kept like chomping on my nipples and my nipples are like kind of big and juicy, so like we can call a snack a snack, right? Like I have a certain amount of empathy for that, but it got to the point where I was like, I'm in pain. So I was like, you gotta stop, you've gotta stop. And so he slowly like palmed his way up to my face. And then when his nose was touching mine, he said, suck me, la. And he felt me kind of recoil, and he saw that my face registered some shock. And he was like, don't worry, my best friend is Malaysian. And in that moment, I remembered what kind of Asian I was. I was a grain of rice, designed to be washed of my impurities, then designed to be pushed around your plate, designed to be in service of the source on your meat. And so when he sat on top of my face, I sucked him, la. And then when he did everything else, I let him. And I remember my head on the foot of my bed, and I turned my head to the right, and I had this teeny tiny window that looked out onto the grass of my backyard. 
and all I could think about was how I had waited so long to experience desire in my body. And now that it had finally happened, all I wanted was to not be in my body. <sighs> Sorry. <laughs> it was after that that I decided, well, people clearly didn't get the memo. I was not doing a very good job of demonstrating how much of a banana I am. So I decided to start telling people that I was half Hawaiian, which, like, is just not smart. I remember <laughs> I went to this Middle Eastern restaurant with this, like, very beautiful man, and he was very earnestly trying to have a conversation with me about my dual citizenship. And I was like, fuck. <laughs> I've not done enough due diligence to figure out the logistics of this lie. <laughs> the most time that I had spent in Hawaii was a week at the Sheraton in Maui with my family. <laughs> and it showed. There are only so many stories you can tell about sitting in the ocean, apparently. <laughs> Even after I stopped telling people that I was half Hawaiian, I was convinced that I had somehow managed to clean myself of my ethnicity. And it wasn't until that night in therapy with Blaine and with Miley and my ex that I realized that no matter how hard I tried to be a banana, people would always see me as Asian. Because I am. <laughs> Needless to say, that relationship didn't work out. We lasted 12 weeks, so we didn't even make it to our first trimester. Um, <laughs> And several months later, I would hear about this party in Brooklyn called Bubble Tea, which a writer once said was a night for slasians. And I remember walking into it for the first time and seeing it like decorated in red and gold with these like cherry blossoms hanging from the ceiling. Or maybe that's just like some sort of sick oriental fantasy that I've projected onto the memory. <laughs> and it turns out that I'm just like a horrible banana still. <laughs> And the room was packed with people who looked like me from wall to wall. And I felt so wooden. It felt like I had crashed somebody else's life. And I remember looking at the stage and seeing this one guy with these like half moon glasses pulled all the way down to his nostrils and he was carrying like this little baby purse on his shoulder and he had these tiny baby heels in white and these white jeans and this white spaghetti strap with all of these little jewels on it that spelled out bubble tea. And I was transfixed by him because every time the light hit his chest, it radiated out. And I was watching him move on stage with so much freedom and with so much agency and I instantly recognized that it was a way that I had never been present in my own body. And I really desperately wanted to know what it felt like. And I was awakened from my stupor by my friend who grabbed my two hands and started like violently shaking me 
And it was because of that that I started dancing. And the moment that I fully committed to joining those people on that floor was like the moment that I ate the spam musubi from Kitchen in Brooklyn for the first time. <laughs> where they take like a piece of spam and they put some sugar on it and then they take a blowtorch and they caramelize it and they put it on top of a block of rice and they put a seaweed like strap around it and you're given this like savory sweet experience that you never knew you really needed <laughs> and if you were to tell me that that's actually how they make spam musubi in Hawaii I'd be like I don't fucking know I spent a week at the Sheraton in Maui <laughs> <laughs> but that night that I felt that it was the very first time that I understood what it meant to tend to a part of my being that for so long had been crying out for recognition, but I had chosen to dismiss for so long. And I know that I will always be a product of my history, but I know that I have the power to change the trajectory of my future. And so I'm grateful that I found myself on the dance floor at Bubble Tea that night because I was being shown the truth. And I'm really grateful that I'm here on the stage telling you all a story about just how much I hated myself because hopefully that means that I've stopped. Thank you. This is Risk. This is Maggie Rogers behind me now. And we just heard from Justin J. Wee, who you can find on Instagram at DJ Dumpling. And before Justin, a little bit of a song by The Roaches. Now I want to share with you another clip of my conversation with my friend Kala Mendoza that you can find on Twitter and Instagram at Kala Mendoza. He is from Nonviolent Peace Force org i highly recommend just paying more attention to the part of your mind that is curious about other people's experiences 
as you go through your day. You know, just asking someone, how's your day going? Or how you doing? Is a simple way to connect with someone. Might be the deli clerk or the woman watering the plants on the sidewalk or someone waiting for the bus. I have heard of folks who make a point of carrying around an, an extra piece of fruit, you know, in their bag or some extra change so they can offer it to anyone who might need it. There are people we've had on risk who myself or someone on our staff first got to know because they were driving the cab <laughs> that that person was taking or you know they were a stranger in a bar we all know that social media algorithms and political propagandists and opportunistic capitalists are always trying to instigate fighting between us but like Bob Dylan said, don't be a pawn in their game. They're always stoking fear and loathing of your fellow citizens. So you'll be distracted from what the ruling class is up to. And the best antidote for that is to be more connected in real time with real people. I think some of the shared stories that we all might have grown up with, religious stories, stories about uh, the principles the nation is said to have been founded on, stories about how our society operates, functions, you know, a lot of these stories are not so universally shared amongst us anymore. We've lost faith in a lot of them. And we might feel bereft sometimes without those old stories that seemed so universal before to lean on, you know, as a rock. But we can still turn to one another, especially to those who might be different from us in any way, to share our stories or our community's stories. And Kala talked a bit about that in our conversation as well. Storytelling is just so central to collectivistic cultures, right? It's the way that we are able to have a shared narrative on how we deal with challenges of the strengths that we have as a community. And I think that the more we see Black, Indigenous, and other people of color bring in their stories, the more textured and varied solutions can be for the problems that are ailing the world. I mean, native organizers have been telling us from Aotearoa to Turtle Island to Borneo that we need to do something about the slow decline into climate catastrophe that we're going into. They've been always saying this. And I think the more that we're able to listen and uplift stories and voices from those who have been historically marginalized, the more that we can actually find a way out of this living nightmare. Again, I highly recommend you follow Kala on social media and get involved in any way you can. Kala teaches absolute beginners how to look out for one another, no matter your age or abilities. Just following his Twitter or Instagram, you can learn quite a lot. 
He's from Nonviolent Peace Force, nonviolentpeaceforce.org, and you can find him on Twitter and Instagram at Kala Mendoza, that's K-A-L-A-M-E-N-D-O-Z-A. And those links are also in the show notes. Let's get back to the stories. In a little bit, we are going to hear from Shen Wei. Oh my God, that story brings me to tears every time I hear it. Another visual artist in our lineup here. But before that, two stories that were shared on separate occasions that Risk was live in Seattle. There's Ellen Aquario's story, How I Met My Mother. But before that, a story by Susan Liu. Oh my gosh, she has an entire play, a solo show written about this same story content here. The show is called 140 Pounds, How Beauty Killed My Mother. And you can find her at susanliu.me. That's S-U-S-A-N. L-I-E-U dot M-E. Here's Susan now with a story we call 140 Pounds. I'm back in my body. I lost my mom when I was 11. I don't have many memories about my mom, but I know that my entire family calls her the hero. She grew up in the Mekong Delta in Vietnam in this small province called Sauk Chang. It's known for its fermented fish noodle soup. We call it Bung Nuk Leo. To me, when I smell it with the shrimp and the pork and the banana flower and the citrus, I think it smells like home. But maybe most of you, when you smell it, you might think it smells like compost rot. When the bin gets too full, it's super funky. But that's what we're known for. And when my mom was 16 and she was growing up, she had to drop out of high school. She was the best student in her class. She was in ninth grade. And she had to support her 11 brothers and sisters. So she went out into the village She'd walk down this dirt road every day, and um, she'd sell lotto tickets. She started selling lotto tickets to people, and she started making money. And then she found out that if she started having other people sell lotto tickets for her, she'd make more money. And then she started having dreams, and she had animals. A pig was one, a, a cow was two, a water buffalo was three. And then she started figuring out what the numbers were, and started buying lotto tickets, and then she started winning. And she won several times. And that's how she saved up enough money to save up for six one-ounce gold bars. And that was enough money to pay for four tickets out of Vietnam. Four tickets to try to get on a boat and get to a Malaysian refugee camp. This was after the fall of Vietnam, and everyone was frightened for their lives every day. They didn't know what was going to happen the next day to them. So she had enough money. She, my dad, my two brothers, they were planning an escape. But it wasn't an easy escape. It was risky. 
Because if any of the communists spotted them or anybody else trying to leave the docks that night, you get thrown into a labor camp, you get thrown into prison, or maybe you just disappear. So that was obstacle number one. That night, she knew it was the night to go, so each parent took a son in their hands and then walked quickly to the docks. And when they got there, the communist lighthouse, it lit up. And all of a sudden, all the passengers had to run back and just run back into the jungle and run as fast as they could. And she started running and she was holding my four-year-old brother hard against her belly and her shoes started flying off, but she kept running into the darkness. She didn't know where she was going. And she ran into a thorny patch and every step she took, more and more thorns went into her body and then her foot became a bloody mess. And then she came back to my grandma's house and you could see all these bloody footprints coming through the house and she'd lie down in the hammock and my grandma would cry saying, this is the last time you're gonna do this. It's not worth it and you're gonna die out there, so stop doing this. And my grandma would take this needle and just take all the thorns out of her foot, take all the thorns out of her foot and wipe all the blood off her feet and say, stop doing this. And my mom did it again and again and again. And on the sixth time, they finally just made it onto a boat. And the boat made it past the communists. And after three days at sea, they made it to a Malaysian refugee camp. My sister was born in that camp. And after two years, we made it to America. And I was born in 85. When we were in America, it was all about the family business. Susan's Nails, named after me. My sister's so pissed about it to this day. <laughs> in the family, everyone had a part to play. And I remember I was four years old, and when all the customers you know, were backed up and people aren't starting at the, the right appointment time, she'd look over at me and she'd nod. And I knew I gotta turn on the charm. And so I'd go up to the customers that were waiting and be like, oh, hi, Daddy. How's your dog? Yeah, you, your hair looks nice. Yeah, and I'd be like taking off her nail polish, really engaged, scheduling the next appointment. It was a family business. And we all had to take part in it. And I felt like I got to take part in my mom's dream. I know some of you might be thinking, isn't that called child labor? I call it, all Vietnamese refugees, we call it free daycare. <laughs> it's a very good model, you should think about it. My mom, she was tough as nails and she only prioritized education. She couldn't finish ninth grade, so when we got to America, she wanted us to focus on school. So I wanted to play trombone. I wanted to play with Todd in band class, but I was not allowed to. And I remember one morning, I woke up really early and I was gonna gather the courage to tell her, I'm gonna try out for volleyball tryouts. Yeah, and um, I'm, I'm getting ready to ask her and, and I see my mom and dad in the kitchen shuffling about and they're moving about and it's weird because this is way too early for them to go to the nail salon. And I, so I say, Ma, where are you guys going? And she said, oh, oh, we're gonna be back later, it's fine. But Ma, it's 6 a.m. and you guys go to the shop at 8 a.m., so where are you guys going? We're coming home late tonight. It's fine. Well, I'm coming home late tonight, too. I'm not coming home at 3, I'm coming home at 5. I'm going to volleyball tryouts. 
And she said, oh no, you're not. You have school. And I was like, I'm in the under minute club with the multiplication tables. I'm smart. I have school handled. I want to do tryouts. And she said, "Nen," which means shut up. And I said, you can't tell me what to do. I'm going to volleyball tryouts and I'm going to make the team and I'm going to show you and I'm going to do whatever I want and I hate you. The car's running. They get in the car. They close the door. I slam the garage door. I hear the car roll out. I hear the door close. That's the last time I ever talked to my mom. And I come back home from school, from tryouts, and my brother says, Susan, mom's in a coma. And when I get to the hospital, I see my dad in the doorway of the room, and I walk over there, and I look at the bed, and that's not my mom. That's a body. That's a vegetable. And when I see her lying there, my legs turn into cement legs, and I can't move, and I can't say anything. And then my dad says, go. And he pushes me behind my back, and he says, go talk to her. And I said, say what to her? Just go talk to her. And it feels like ages me just trying to drag my legs over and then walk and sit down. And he goes, hold her hand. So then I pick up her hand, and her body is this weird yellow color because all the liquid of her natural body has soaked down into this little tub next to her of all this liquid, and I'm holding her hand, and it's cold. It is so cold. And the only color on her body is her red nails, because she thought she'd come out of a... that day with her beautiful nails. Talk to her. So finally, when I'm ready to talk to her, I said, Ma, you always said that um, when I go to college, you'd move in with me. So can you come back so you can go to college with me? Can you come back to me? Uh. After five days in a coma, she flatlined. It's always hard when people ask me what my mom died of. It's not something that you can immediately feel sorry for, like cancer or getting hit on the sidewalk by a car. She died from plastic surgery. She went in for a tummy tuck, the narrowing of her nostrils, and a chin implant with Dr. Frank Thomas, a plastic surgeon in San Francisco who had 24 lawsuits against him had been on probation for years, been sanctioned by the medical board two times, operated in an unaccredited facility. She walked into this clinic and she didn't know what she was walking into. Two hours in the operation, her narrowing of her nostrils goes fine, they're working on the tummy tuck, and then the siren goes off. She's lost oxygen to her brain. The nurse tells the doctor. The doctor tries to do mouth-to-mouth -mouth immediately, lifts her legs up, tries to figure things out, gives her extra medication, and nothing is happening. Usually, 
after not having oxygen for four minutes, you have permanent brain damage. And it was at the 14 minute mark that he calls 911. And turns out the clinic was a block and a half away from the hospital. So I'm in my late 20s now, and I'm at business school. I'm staying up late at night working on a statistics problem set, but I don't want to do it, because I keep thinking about Dr. Frank. And I keep thinking, how does a man like him, he kills somebody, he continues to have a track record, how do you just lose your license for a couple years and keep on practicing? Where's the justice in this system? I can't stop thinking about him. And I said, you know, I'm gonna Google this motherfucker. <laughs> and turns out he was still practicing and he was still on probation. So I decided, because I was getting an MBA, I was gonna seek revenge, but with a multi-prong marketing campaign. <laughs> and I was gonna get him, because I found out a couple of things. I found out that he targeted Vietnamese women in the weekly Vietnamese newspaper. 30% of his clients were Vietnamese, and he also had volunteered his time during the Vietnam War doing reconstructive surgery. I couldn't put my finger on it. There was something really odd about this guy. But maybe instead of just the negligence on my mom, maybe there was a class action lawsuit. So I was gonna go at it that way. But then also, I was gonna have a marketing campaign where he starts to feel paranoid. I was gonna have targeted Facebook ads so that he'd click on Facebook and he'd see his face and it would say, I am watching you. And he'd look at him and be like, ah, that's me, but I'm watching myself. Who is watching me? If I'm watching myself, right? And then, so that would start the paranoia. And then he would drive into work and then there would be a billboard and it would be all the women that he's hurt. And it'd say, we've got your eyes on you. And then he'd be like, what? This is so confusing. <laughs> and then I would stage protests in front of the clinic so that any new patient would know who they were going under with the knife. And my final trick in all of this is I was gonna schedule an appointment to get breast implants. And I would sit in front of him and he would be like, so how'd you hear about us? And I'd say, oh, I've done my research. <laughs> and then he'd say, well, what are you here to get done? And then I'd slowly unzip my bag and say, revenge. And then I'd pull out the subpoenas and I'd put it there and I'd slide it onto the desk. And then I'd get up and walk away very slowly, just looking at him for a long time until I closed the door. That's what I was gonna do. I was up late one night and so I was talking to my friend Amanda. She went to Harvard Law School and I was like, Amanda, I need you to do research on this, figure out how we're gonna structure the case. Tell me how this is all gonna go down. I was so excited about my plan. And then she said to me, Susan, he's dead. And all of a sudden, my mouth, it turned sour. It was all the sour enzymes that you get when you start to throw up and it got sour all over through my mouth and through my stomach. And then I just felt like my body just slipped out onto the floor, onto the mess of all the research of my papers and that hero that I wanted to be for my family was gone. All of that was for nothing. And I said to her, Amanda, can you sue dead people? And it turns out you can't. This has been a really hard journey for me because I'm a Buddhist and I should be compassionate. 
and have loving kindness for all beings. And I should forgive people and see the good in them. And that's been hard to do. But I think I could do that if I could humanize him or get to know him. So I sent a letter to one of his kids. His son is a marriage and family therapist. And my siblings thought I was totally crazy and they're like, what are you doing? And I said, I, I gotta do what I need to do. And then three days later, I got a call. It's the youngest daughter, Megan. And she said, Susan, I got your letter and I want you to know that I'm really, 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 really sorry. And I can't imagine this happening to my family. And I want you to know that your mom's death impacted me the most. Call me back. So I texted her. And then three days passed. And so then I called and left a voicemail. A few more days passed. And I texted her a couple more times. And that's where things stand now. My siblings think that she might have gotten spooked. Maybe she thinks I'm going to sue her or her family. So like a nerd, I looked up if I could sue her, and I can't. And so I wrote her a letter of all the statutes of limitations of why I can't do anything. I had a four-year window since 1999 to do something, and so now I can't. In the letter, I also said this. I'd just like to know more the kind of person your father was, how you felt about his work, how he felt about his work. Maybe I'm trying to make sense of what happened, or at the very least, trying to come to peace with it. By us connecting, I hope we can rewrite the narrative we pass down to future generations. That while we cannot undo the past, the human spirit is capable of forgiveness. So I'm just waiting, and I'm hoping maybe she's going to hear this recording and pick up the phone and call me. Hi, I am a comic. I just want you guys to remember that after my story. <laughs> just, uh, just look me up, buy some tickets. A <clears throat> um, couple weeks ago, I was walking out to get a cup of coffee, and I saw this mother and daughter walking together. 
the daughter was probably about 12 years old, and she just reached over and put her arm around her mother's waist. When the mother felt that touch, she instinctively just rested her head on her daughter's and pulled her in closer. They continued to walk without missing a beat, nestled in each other's arms, sharing a cup of bubble tea, walking so effortlessly. I thought, wow, that's beautiful. And that's something I've never experienced with my own mother. For the longest time, it's all I ever wanted, just to feel close to her. The problem was that my mother seemed to just really hate me. <laughs> I know kids say that sometimes when they butt their heads with their parents, but for me it wasn't that. It was always constant. Whenever my mother looked at me, there was such coldness in her eyes. Sometimes the look was so piercing, it would send needles of panic through my whole body. The alarms would go off in my head, what's wrong, what have I done wrong, something's wrong. And I would get to this sick pit of my stomach feeling when I realized that something wrong was actually just me. When the movie Joy Luck Club came out, we watched that as a family. And I remember thinking, well, there you go. <laughs> Mothers and daughters are complicated. This is an Asian thing. But at age 12, my mother caught me watching TV when I wasn't supposed to, before I got my chores done. She was so mad. She grabbed me by the hair and threw me onto every wall of the house. The throbbing pain from my scalp, through my whole body, I felt dizzy. I wished I could have just passed out, but I didn't. So my mom made me get up. She grabbed a rolled up sock from the laundry basket that I was supposed to have put away, and she shoved it in my mouth and dragged me once more in front of the television set. And she said, if you love TV so much, you should just sit there and watch it all day. So there I sat for hours, unable to move, with my face pushed up against the screen, gurgling in my tears. I thought, I don't think this is an Asian thing. <laughs> Certainly no joy or luck in this situation. What was so wrong with me that my mom hated me so much? Sometimes just the sound of my laughter could set her off. She'd be filled with rage that she just had to let out and she slapped me across the face like it was a reflex. And as I got older, the beatings just got worse and more frequent. While all this was happening, my father just pretended it wasn't. He would just lock himself in his room, close his eyes, and shut out the world. 
Sometimes he would pray. I found it ironic that he believed in prayers, that he believed that someone up above could hear him, his holy father. <laughs> when as my father, he refused to hear me just outside his door, crying for help. <laughs> I found out in college that my mom was actually my stepmom. I was a child from my father's first failed marriage. For old school Koreans, that's baggage. So my parents thought it'd be best to just keep it a secret until my mom exploded. She couldn't take it anymore. She said, you don't know how good you've had it. If it wasn't for me, you would have been stranded in Korea with no one. It's because of me. Because I took you in, you have a home here in America. When this bombshell fell on my face, I buckled on the knees. And I actually apologized to her for ever making her feel bad. Because I knew that I was a daughter she never asked for or desired. And it's true. She still gave me a home. A home where I often fantasize about killing myself, but still a home. What would I be without a home? So I tried for years to make our relationship work, to show her appreciation in the way she liked, expensive gifts, dinners out, shopping trips. Whatever she wanted, I tried. But it was never enough. Three years ago, uh, things started to get really strained because it wasn't something I could sustain. She was giving me silent treatments left and right. During one of those silent treatments, I was making a trip to California. I made plans to see my uncle. She found out and called me furious. How dare you try to see my brother, my blood, when I'm not speaking to you? Without me, you don't get him. <sighs> that was the first and the last time I hung up the phone on my mother. We haven't spoken since. It took me years to realize that no matter what I did, it was never going to be enough. <sighs> Because I was not enough for her. And at age 35, two years ago, I went to Korea to find the woman who gave birth to me. All I had was this tattered piece of paper, a remnant from my dad's divorce proceedings. He said, I guess you should go find her. This is all you need. Just take that to a police station, and you should be able to find her. Of course, my dad was wrong, as he is about a lot of things. When I got there, 
nobody wanted to help. I spent four days at this one police station just being a nuisance. See, at one point, Korea was the biggest exporter of unwanted children. So adoptees coming back and looking for birth parents is nothing new. Finally, someone told me, you know, <laughs> we just can't find your mom because she hasn't even registered anywhere. She's gone off grid. Even if we wanted to help, we can't help you. <laughs> I felt the walls closing in. My trip was nearing its end. And I knew that if I didn't find her then, I would never find her. So I blurted out this little piece of information I had overheard. One of the staff had said that my mom was one of four children. So I said, she has siblings. She has siblings. Maybe you could just call one of these siblings, see if uh, they know me. See if they know where she is. See if she's ever looked for me. And I broke down, sobbing, like a child in front of these strangers. Finally, a detective felt compelled. He said, I can make some calls. Don't get your hopes up, though. Before I could comprehend what was fully happening, he's telling me, they know you. And they know where your mother is. They're going to come here tomorrow, meet you at this police station. All of a sudden, everything was moving so fast, so rapidly. I could barely catch my breath. But it hadn't, you know? It had taken 35 years for me to get to this point where I could see my mother's face, one that I could never imagine because I didn't know where to begin. The moment came where she walked through the doors. It was so surreal. I once said a No Doubt concert that I went to was surreal. <laughs> I really misused the word. <laughs> Surreal is time stopping and you standing there but you're floating out of your body looking down at the impending situation going what is this going to be for you? Are you going to be okay? I guess without realizing I had hoped she would feel familiar that when I saw her right away, I would know that that was my mother, that I would find ease, comfort, in knowing that I was someone to somebody and not a nothing. But it wasn't like that at all. She was a complete stranger. Nothing about her felt familiar. She could have been someone that I passed at the grocery store without a second glance. We had to be introduced formally. Mother, 
here's your daughter. Daughter, here's your mother. We moved to each other so awkwardly, and we found our embrace. We started crying our hearts out, these guttural, body-heaving cries. We drowned in our tears for all that we had lost and for something we could never be. A mother and daughter walking effortlessly together, nestled in each other's arms while sharing a drink. Because that is a bond that takes presence and nurture. And she was never there. After I left Korea, I uh, tried to keep in touch with her, but I just couldn't. She was so far away physically, but in every other way. I think I can say that I've had terrible luck in mothers. But they did make me think really hard of what kind of mother I would be one day. I am a mother of two beautiful boys. And the mother I am is one that has chosen to see my children clearly for what they are. Gifts, not baggage. Precious gifts that need to be handled with care, love, and presence. Although I've had terrible luck in mothers, I found tremendous joy in the mother in me. Thank you. When I was 23 years old, I found myself standing in front of a painting by Vincent van Gogh. The painting was the olive trees with yellow sky and the golden sun. The painting was so fascinating to me because I had seen this painting many times when I was a child in the newspaper, but I just couldn't imagine one day I was standing in front of the painting, looking so closely, almost recognize the brushstroke from the artist. Then I walked from room to room. I saw Monet's green stacks. I saw Roman statues, Egyptian mummies, even the art collection from China, my native country, was astonished me. You see, I had never stood so close to creations I found so magnetic. I had never seen these sort of masterpieces 
that spoke directly to my heart, right in front of my face. Because I was raised in Shanghai, in a slum, I had never stepped foot in an art museum before, and I couldn't get over how much I felt like I'd arrived at home. My childhood in the slum was full of trouble. I lived with my parents, my grandparents, three aunts, two uncles, a few cousins, some cats, rats, and cockroaches, all under one roof. I didn't have my own room, so I spent a lot of time just outside, playing with other children. Chasing around the maze that was the street of the slum. In the summertime, I would sleep outside in the communal courtyard for the entire season to escape the heat of the house. Our cooling system was fans made of bamboo leaves, and just one electrical fan that everybody was fighting over. My parents married during the Cultural Revolution in China, that lasted from late 60s through late 70s. People who were wealthy and suspected to being capitalist were being harassed, or put in labor camps, or even worse. My mother's father was an entrepreneur. He owned an engineering firm, and the family lived. Very、uh, lushly in this mansion in French Concession, but my grandfather's success made him a target. When the Cultural Revolution began, he was stripped nearly everything he had owned. So my mother did what so many other wealthy young women in China did at the time: she decided to marry into a poor family for a more stable future. She met my father, the son of a construction worker. She married him, and left her childhood in the mansion behind. And then she moved to the slum with my father. They fell in love, but their life was very hard. They both worked long hours in the factories, and the countless difference in their family background got them fighting all the time. Because of my mother's upbringing, she was very westernized. I have never seen her dressed in chipa, which is this traditional Chinese-style、uh, dress. She drank a lot of coffee rather than tea. Taught me how to use、um, fork and a knife. She once brought a whole family to a park for a picnic trip, but no one around us actually. Understand the concept of picnic. She was also interested in fashion design. She always dressed very nicely, and she made clothes for everyone in the family. I often looked too dapper for the slum. 
I had this chocolate-colored striped suit. Um, very, very chic. She would sometimes put hair oil on me just to make me look extra nice. My hair is always so shiny under the sun. When I strolled with her through the slum, everyone commented on us. Some admiring us, but most were just very jealous. My mother became like a fashion icon in the slum. All the women came to her and asked her to design clothes for them. She developed a talent for making very classy-looking dress from very cheap fabric. Years after the Cultural Revolution ended, she left her factory job, went to a fashion school, and became a full-time clothing designer. Even before she was retired, she designed clothes for publishing houses and TV productions. Meanwhile, my father never left his factory. He's been fixing machines his whole life. When I was young, he would work long days and came home very tired and sometimes frustrated with everyone at home. Perhaps life was too overwhelming for him at the time. The constant stress and the work and exhaustion. Sometimes he was even abusive because of it. I was very scared of him when I was a kid. He would always hit me when I went home with a very bad school report. We had a good time too, but I started to forget all about those. My memories of my childhood always went back to getting beat up by my father. After a while, I just stopped talking to my father. I began to feel that we were so different. It was almost as if we weren't related. One day, when I was eight years old, my mother discovered my textbooks were covered with pencil drawings. She said, this is my art gene. It has been passed to Weiwei, which is um, my nickname from my mother. She was so proud to think that I may be an artist, and she began to send me to these weekend art schools. As it turned out, I actually really loved art classes. I grew to love drawing and the design. Eventually, I was accepted to an art college in Shanghai, and I began to understand for sure that I was an artist. I'm grateful that my parents made that possible for me. But studying art in China in the late 90s was difficult because it wasn't the best environment for self-expressions. Resources were very limited. You don't get to see a lot of uh, art books from overseas, and the uh, internet was not that common at the time, and uh, the Chinese society was still quite restrictive. My art school was more practical than actually artistic. One time, our assignment was to design a perfume bottle, but none of the students had ever used or owned a perfume. I went home and I painted a big 
breast woman on this beer bottle for my assignment. My parents were very shocked and confused, but they were just happy I was not getting in trouble on the street. My mother continued to be excited about my art studies. She began to speak me like a peer, since she felt like we cut from the same cloth, as they say. But my father never seemed to know what to say to me about art. It seemed like art was just an alien thing to him, not a part of his world of machine and work. For a while, I was working in this design firm. One morning, I was ready to leave for work. My father questioned me why I don't bring any tool to work. I looked over to my father, and impatiently responded. I use my brain. I can see his eyes dimmed down to a slice of embarrassment and anger. Sometimes he will listen to Shanghai Opera, which is kind of a music that comes from this folk tradition in Shanghai, seen in the Shanghai dialect. Not like the world-class Beijing opera, which is considered high art, and、uh, it is admired by music lovers from all over the world. I remember being a teenager watching my father hum along to this Shanghai opera, and hoping he could have a better taste for finer things in life. The more I grew to love art, and the more I felt it was in my genes, like my mother said, the more. My father and I seem to be from a different world. I knew I should go see and study real art, where the artists can express themselves whenever they want. So, in the summer of 2000, I landed in the United States. I was accepted by the Minneapolis College of Art and Design. A great school where I continue to discover who I am and what I want. I saw and did so many things for the first time, including making the kind of art I love. After three years in Minneapolis, I moved to New York City and went to graduate school, trying to survive and making art. When I moved to the U.S., I drifted apart from my father even more. I would talk to my mother on the phone all the time, but if my father answered the phone, the conversation would be painfully awkward. We were just two people with nothing in common anymore. A couple years ago, my parents came to New York to visit me. It was my father's first trip out of China. I brought them to Washington D.C., and we went to the National Gallery of Art. My mother was tired, so she went sit in the coffee shop the whole time, and、uh, left me with my father. We walked room to room silently. We don't even talk to each other. It's completely wordless. We walked through this long hall of sculptures. I intentionally speed up so I can just get over this awkwardness as fast as I can. Then I saw my father 
sat down at this one bench, staring very intensely in front of him. I thought he must be lost in thought about something. So I just stood still, holding my position by the door and uh, hoping to exit the gallery as soon as possible. But I just watched him just sitting there, not even moving. I feel like he must sit in there for a long, long time. Finally, I walked over to him, trying to signal him that we ought to move on. Before I said anything, he turned his head to me, leaned his body forward a little bit, pointed his finger to a bronze statue right in front of him and said, That is the most beautiful thing I've seen in my life. At that moment, I realized that my father was in a museum for the first time in his life. And just as I had such a profound experience the first time I stepped foot in a museum in Minneapolis, so was he. He was staring at Rodin's The Thinker, a nude man in sober meditation battling with a powerful internal struggle. And the sculpture might as well have been alive for him. It might as well have been a sculpture of him. At the moment, I almost burst into tears. There was so much about my father that I had never seen before and could only see now that we were in this new environment away from the place he had a relentlessly difficult life in the past six decades. Later, I heard my father sing discreetly by himself in the hotel bathroom. I even came to realize how beautifully simple and true those old Shanghai folk opera songs had always been, though I'd failed to see it before. And I was telling myself, my father and I are not really so different. And that's my art gene.
That is all for this episode, folks. This is Ings behind me now, I-N-G-S. And we just heard that remarkable story by Shen Wei. You can find him at shenwei.studio. That's S-H-E-N-W-E-I dot studio. Two remarkable photographers on this episode. Before Shen, we heard from Ellen Aquario, who you can find on Instagram at Ellen Aquario. That's E-L-L-E-N-A-C-U-A-R-I-O. Ellen is a stand-up comedian, so you should also check out her funny stuff. And before that, a little lullaby of sorts. Thanks to Taj Easton and Jeff Barr for putting together the little interstitials holding the episode together today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Folks, don't forget to follow us on our socials as well on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We're at Risk Show. And anything else you need to know about the show can be found at risk-show.com. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. I will speak your language. I will teach your dog physics. 